I'm Randy, the pastor half of the podcast, and my friend Kyle is a philosopher. This podcast hosts conversations at the intersection of philosophy, theology, and spirituality. We also invite experts to join us, making public a space that we've often enjoyed off-air around the proverbial table with a good drink in the back corner of a dark pub. Thanks for joining us, and welcome to A Pastor and a Philosopher Walk Into a Bar. There's certain voices that when you hear them, instantly you're stopped in your tracks and you realize that there's a weight to these words. There's a there's an authority here that needs to be listened to. There's a deep wisdom that is being spoken that I need to pay attention to. And that's what happened to me the first time I listened to Dr. Willie James Jennings. I don't know about you, Kyle. Similar, yeah. I mean, I approach everything more critically than you do, but he was definitely somebody that I was primed to trust based on friends who really were into his work and friends that I respect a lot. Yeah, diving into his books for this interview was really fun and challenging. Yeah, Dr. Willie James Jennings is a theologian at Yale Divinity School. He um, teaches theology and Africana studies. He also was at Duke Divinity School for a long time. Mm -hmm. I don't know how long. He's written a number of very, very influential books. After Whiteness is one of them. The Christian Imagination is another. I mean, there's he's written a number of really, really heavyweight books. He also wrote a commentary on the Book of Acts, which I think might be the best commentary in the Book of Acts and really revolutionizes the way we can look at the church, hmm. what it means to be a Christian in the world. It's brilliant stuff. Yeah. I'm going to have to read the Acts thing because I stopped reading Acts in college because I was so, like abused by the Pentecostals yes. that I was yes. surrounded by. Yeah, no, you need to see what Dr. Jennings has to say. So today we're going to be bringing you a conversation with Dr. Willie James Jennings, and I'm super excited to share Dr. Jennings with you, friends. So on this show, what we like to do is have a tasting of some kind of alcoholic beverage at the beginning of each episode because we're a pastor and a philosopher walking to a bar and it sets a good mood. And so what we've been doing for uh, the last episode and this one and a few more in the future is having our friend Tim on to walk us through some bourbon that he sent us. Yeah. Tim is with The Power of Bourbon. If you're into whiskey, if you're into bourbon at all, check out their YouTube channel. It's not a podcast, is it, Tim? No, uh, we've dabbled with podcasts with my wife, but it's a lot to keep up on. I don't know how you Indeed, guys do it. Indeed, it is. <laughs> it is. It is. Yeah. Well, again, thank you for your generosity. Tim sent us a bodacious box of uh, mystery whiskeys, and this is the second one we're trying. So let's do it. I've never smelled a whiskey that right. smells like this. Oh, I get pineapple. Is that weird? It, I'm, I, now I, this is the dusty books for me. I'm wondering if this is bourbon if, or if it must be something else. Yeah, I get a lot of oak on this one. Mm-hmm. A lot of oak. Like sawdust. But then there's the bright notes on top of the of the nose as well. I also want to tell you listeners, these tastings will just be longer. We're we're <laughs> we're tasting really good stuff with a person who is really generous and really knows his stuff. So sorry, but not sorry. It smells oh. like laundry detergent. Get out mm. of here. I okay, can fine. go there. Fine. I can go there. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anything's fair game, right? Anything is fair game. Yeah. I, well, I, forgive me yeah, for my judgment. Say, I, I don't know about laundry detergent, but like definitely like you walk into a laundry mat, like yeah, maybe because fresh, there's all that type of stuff. Fresh clothes. Yeah. I, I, that 
That is a. I think okay. it's because a lot of laundry detergent has like nature scents in it, and I'm getting, I don't know, a fruity okay. kind I'm of tasting thing. It. Mm. I mean, I'd be completely okay if my laundry smelled like this all the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh wow. Oh dang. Oh whoa. Mm-hmm. Oh, that that has layers. Layers, layer upon layer, and it's subtle. Mm-hmm. This can't be barrel proof. No, I don't think so. Forty-five oh, percent max. I want like three times as much of this. <laughs> So, yeah, so I get a lot of, like, caramel and vanilla, very traditional bourbon mm-hmm. notes, but then meld it in with some oak mm-hmm. and cherry. I love this. Yeah. I love it. Lemon, it's really bright. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to say pretty old. So the last mm-hmm. time you tricked us with a bottle that was old, but not in the normal sense of old, I don't think this is yep. that, but I do get a lot of wood on it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is whatever it is. I don't know if it's expensive or not. I, I would, I would buy this. This is if it's not eight hundred dollars. This is delicious. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah, and it's it's another fun one. It doesn't coat your mouth as much. It it never hits the jawline. It mm-hmm. definitely nope. stays. Yeah. It reminds me a little bit of one of my favorite bourbons, which is Elmer T. Lee. Yeah, which would suggest this is maybe slightly high rye mash bill. That'd be my mm-hmm. guess. You cut Tim off, though. I'm sorry. What were you saying? <laughs> You're good. Uh, just that it, it stays mid-tongue. It doesn't spread out as much, so it's not as oily or viscous as some other bourbons. Mm-hmm. Okay, Tim. Here's the reveal. What are we drinking? Oh, Old Fitzgerald oh, yes. Bottled and Bond 16-year distillery-only release. 16 oh, years. <sighs> yeah. So I recently had their, uh, was it a 14, something like that. They have so many different age releases, it's hard to keep track. And then I had one that was a bit younger than that a a year or two ago. And I'm trying to locate the (laughs) 19-year eventually. Yeah, yeah, and and they've all been really consistent in a very similar wheelhouse. Mm -hmm. So tell us, I I include myself in the, I don't know bourbon is well enough to know Old, old Fitzgerald bottled and bond 16 years. Is this a highly sought after or what, what did the bourbon world think of this? Yeah. So this is, so heaven Hill owns the old Fitzgerald line and they started the decanter series. So it comes in a really pretty decanter and mm-hmm. everything like that. Uh, but they do two releases a year, one in the spring, one in the fall. And then there is the 16 year old red label ones that only get released at the distillery occasionally. Uh, so it's been over the last, I want to say three or four years that they've been doing this. And so they're really sought after people line up and go crazy for them and everything like that. One, because the bottle looks amazing. Yeah. And two, it's some really good, really old bourbon. In it there. doesn't taste like it, but it reminds me of the story reminds me of old foes birthday bourbon. Yes. Kind of yeah, it's, it's, uh, heaven Hills kind of response to that so as bourbon has gotten really popular everybody's coming up with limited editions that are Mm -hmm. you know one-offs and so this is their response so you waited in line for this yes uh we were we had a distillery tour it was chuck and i and we walked up and i saw him i was like well i may get in trouble with the wife today but you can't say no to that bottle (laughs) (laughs) yeah when i saw them announce the 19 year i was legitimately tempted to drive to kentucky (laughs) just to camp out for that yeah wow well this is extremely generous tim yeah thank you so much one more time what is this tim this is Old Fitzgerald Bottled and Bond 16 Year. Cheers. Cheers. Delicious.
Well, Dr. Willie James Jennings, thank you so much for joining us on A Pastor and a Philosopher Walking to a Bar. Glad to be here with you, gentlemen. Kyle, uh, ask your first question, which is a very simple question. (laughs) Yeah, it's simple and not at all simple at the same time. So every time we interview a theologian, I'm a philosopher by training, so I always like to ask the theologians, what is theology? And I always get a totally different answer. So how would you you approach that? Uh, The question is, what is theology? Yep. The answer I always give um, is that theology is a practice of trying to think after God. And that's where all the fun begins. After in what sense? After God has spoken. After God has become become flesh. Mm -hmm. After God has um, died and risen again. And then the fun starts. (laughs) (laughs) And theology is that fun. When I asked Stanley, your former uh, colleague, Stanley Harawas, this, uh, and he he had a fun answer. I asked, what's the difference between the work of biblical scholarship and theology? You have a unique kind of vantage point on that because you do biblical scholarship and theology. Um, and I'm going to ask you about your work on, on the book of Acts in a little bit. But when we asked Stanley this, he said, um, whatever the difference is, it's been a disaster for the church. So what would you say, Dr. Jennings, is the difference between biblical scholarship and theology? Well, the, to, to, to be kinder, to um, <laughs> biblical folks, I would say the the difference is that uh, a group of us spend much more time listening to how people hear the scripture, and others of us spend more time listening to how the scriptures are presented. Hmm. And so the theologian is that first group, Mm -hmm. the biblical scholar is that second group. Mm -hmm. And at their best, at their best, um, biblical scholars pay closer attention, and by closer I mean more sustained attention to the text than we theologians tend to, not because we're doing something wrong, but because we have other matters to look at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we could yeah. do a whole episode just <laughs> on could, that. Yep. You're going to find that there's so many things that we want to talk to you about. We're just kind of just be jumping all over the place. Hopefully it will sound cohesive when it comes out. But there are several topics that we're going to jump to. So, well, Listen, I, I love the jujitsu. so work. <laughs> Let's go. Let's go. Excellent. So, um, so you've argued in the Christian imagination that modern Christianity operates with a diseased social imagination, I think is how you put it. Can you explain mm-hmm. what you mean by that and how do you think that arose yeah so we do operate with a diseased social imagination and it's because of the formation of modern christianity inside what i call the racial condition there is in our moment the reality that we are inside two things that are unfolded modern christianity has a racial architecture and modern racial reasoning has a Christian theological architecture. Hmm. And so the intertwining of those two things have created for us a social vision that is in many ways is already infected, is diseased. And we have learned how to function inside of the disease, even though it's killing us. Wow. Okay. So we're going to have to unpack some of that. Yes. yes. <laughs> we had questions on this later in the outline. I'm pulling them forward <laughs> as, as we speak. Um, okay. So in what sense then does, um, 
how did you put it? There's a, a Christian theological architecture to race. Is that what you said? There's can a you, racial yes. architecture to... Well, it goes both ways, yeah. I guess. goes both ways. Yeah. Can you unpack that a little bit more, and then I'll have some yeah, follow-ups? So, so on the one side, there is um, a Christian architecture to modern racial reasoning. What do I mean by that? Hmm. So modern racial reasoning comes out of the way in which Christians understood who they are in the world over against other peoples, especially Mm. Jewish peoples, especially the people of Israel, biblical Israel. And Christians understood themselves to be the replacement of Israel. (laughs) So in in theology, this is the idea of supersessionism, that we replaced Israel Mm -hmm. as the people of God. And so once we have positioned ourselves as the people of God, then a number of bad effects come into play. Most importantly for what I'm talking about now is the idea that we as Christians represent divine election. God Mm -hmm. has elected us, Mm -hmm. those of us who are Christian, becoming Christian and who have become Christian. And then that election can then be seen. It can, it's materialized not only in what we do in the world, not only in what we believe in the world, but how we look and what we build are all signs of our election, our chosenness by God. Mm-hmm. And this, think of this as um, a, a bed of rice upon which you're going to put some other things that you'll have to eat. So upon this bed then emerges ideas of difference, ideas of difference that are calibrated by Christians coming into contact with other peoples that heretofore they had not imagined and and starting to imagine that difference inside of Mm -hmm. the recognition of their chosenness out of that comes the racial architecture of the western world and now so let's flip it then to that other part of what i just said so that there is a racial there is a racial architecture inside of modern christianity Mm -hmm. so that christians began to see themselves inside of uh, this racial vision of difference rooted in what it means to be chosen, what it means to be elect of God. And that's, that is in many ways the energy out of which modern racial thinking, racial reasoning, and racial vision comes to be formed. So you say in the roots of our faith of Christianity, we saw our faith as replacing Israel. What what would the the inverse of that be? Like, how 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 could we have not gone wrong in that? If we would remember, what's in Ephesians two? Now, since one of you is a pastor, one of you is a, a philosopher, probably neither one of you know the Bible too well. Ephesians <laughs> 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 oh, two. I mean, you're a theologian. We could say the same. Whatever. <laughs> That's good. Ephesians two. It says the beautiful passage. You Gentiles remember. And remembering is really important. Remember that you were outside the covenants of promise, mm-hmm. that you were uh, estranged from the commonwealth of Israel, yeah. and that you were without God in the world and hopeless. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near. Mm-hmm. What, what would have been the case is an ongoing Gentile remembering that we have been brought into the story of another people. We have not kicked the other people out of their story. We've been brought into their story. 
And so that very idea, had it had it been allowed to do its work throughout the history of Christianity, would have created a different sense of what it means to be a Christian. What, what sense would that have been? It would have been a sense of a, a kind of deep humility in which we never saw ourselves as the host inviting hmm. everybody else into us, hmm. but as the guests entering into another people's reality. And that reality of entering in becomes a mode of living, hmm. a mode of being, that we are always in humility entering the lives of others in hopes of building life together. But that's not what emerged. What emerged, <laughs> what emerged at the site of the surprise, especially in the book of Acts, the surprise of Gentiles believing in the God of Israel and Jewish believers and J Jewish folks who were not believers trying to make sense of these Gentiles worshiping the God of Israel, that that, that incredible new dynamic, that unprecedented dynamic, mutated into Gentiles imagining that they were the whole point. And so instead of instead of the Gentile question being out, being the reality out of which our faith emerges, what emerges is something that will soon become the Jewish question. What do yeah. we do with those people who don't believe correctly? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Would you say real quick? I'm sorry. Sure. No worries. Would you say because we think maybe well. I was going to say we think Paul wrote Ephesians, but probably not. But somebody Pauline, um, would you say Paul had this idea of Gentiles being grafted in, or was Paul partially responsible for this idea of this kind of Gentile colonialism? No, you know, here's the thing about it. Um, I always say that um, Paul may have been the father of it, but the, 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 what I always say is that it was by accident. He didn't use any protection. <laughs> <laughs> Paul gave, gave birth to an idea okay. that he didn't imagine would be taken by the Gentiles hmm. in the direction that it was taken. Okay. You're thinking now in the and book so, of Romans? Right. And so that that and what is and what is that idea? That Gentile inclusion meant a new reality. Full stop. But then Gentiles came along and said, okay, we have two more sentences. It, it not only means a new reality; it means eradication mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. of Jewish of Jewish election, and then it means replacement. Mm -hmm. Those were the two sentences Paul didn't write, but you could say that those those who came after us said, "Ah, let's write these in." Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Paul maybe should have used more protection on several other occasions as well: <laughs> gender, <laughs> slavery, etc. Um, okay. I'm going to, if if it's okay, I'm going to read a thing that you said in a different interview because I think it's brilliant and I want you to unpack it a little bit. It's longish, but, but not too long, all right? And it's right on the same theme. So you said, quote, the fact that Christians came to identify themselves as the chosen people is already a profound distortion of the story. But this is where they are when we come to the colonial moment. They believe that they are at the very center of what God wants to do in the world. This belief is in everything they do and say, the way they read the Bible, the way they form their theology, the way they teach, the way they carry out their Christian lives. As they begin to realize their power, they also realize the power to shape the perceptions of themselves and others. That is, they begin to understand that not only do they have the power to transform the landscape and the built environment, they also have the power to force people into a different perception of the world and of themselves. This is what we came to call European, the power to transform the land and the perception of the people. 
a racial vision started to emerge. It floated around in many places with many differences in body type, skin color, and so forth. It didn't come out of nowhere. But now inside this matrix, it starts to harden. It starts to become a way of perception, not simply of a conjecture. This is where whiteness begins. Love that quote. <laughs> and it, uh, I want you to unpack it, and then I want to make a philosophical connection, if I can. Sure. So, and, and the last part of it is the key to it. When so many people try to understand what whiteness is, they too quickly misunderstand whiteness as phenotype, as biology, hmm. without realizing it forms precisely in this reality of centeredness that Christians coming to the new world, who will later we would call Europeans, operate out of. And how else would you operate? If once you realize that you are in a place that you heretofore had not imagined, and you are trying to make sense of yourself in that heretofore unimagined place, drawing on your theological vision in which you've already replaced Israel, then you then you come to the conclusion that many would come to, which is to say, God brought me here to set this thing in order. <laughs> yeah. God brought me here not only to clarify to all those who I am encountering the truth of the world, but to clarify myself in that truth and to clarify myself as the one who knows the truth. Mm -hmm. All those things are, and all those things are imagined inside a kind of sick humility. I'm just doing what God has enabled me to do, and I do it with God's help. And so out of that forms whiteness as a way of being in the world, a way of seeing the world, a way of analyzing, shaping, uh, projecting the world, and having the power. That's the key, having the power to realize that imagination. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So apologies in advance for comparing what you said to a white German philosopher, but <laughs> <laughs> it reminded me so much of my experience reading Nietzsche for the first time, because Ooh. it is almost exactly his critique of Christianity, specifically the bit about they began to realize their power to shape the perceptions of others. And yeah. for him, that critique goes all the way down, and there simply is no Christianity left over after that critique is acknowledged. Obviously, mm -hmm. you're a Christian theologian, and so you probably disagree with them about that. So how deep does it go? Um, because I find it personally difficult. I mean, I really resonated with Nietzsche back in the day, and I still do. Like when I survey the history of Christianity and when I talk to Catholic theologians, for example, and they describe to me how their decisions have been made historically, I see that critique way back. <laughs> and it's difficult to imagine outside the New Testament itself that there has ever been a kind of Christianity that didn't suffer some level of that critique. So I want you to uh, tell me how deep you think it goes. I think it goes all we, I think it goes, as I said, it goes to the bone and to the dirt, as I like to say. But here, here is where what I mentioned earlier is so important. The, the, the point is that there is a shaping, not that we generate, but there's a shaping that we enter into. And that is, that's what's a part of entering Israel's story. We, we are entering the story of other people. And so there, there is that reality of, of coming to that crucial moment that we see in the book of Acts. And what is that moment? These people, these Gentile peoples who, who know that they are not 
Jewish people. They're not those, those Jewish people. They know they're different. But in this moment that is established by the Spirit through the witness of the life of Jesus, spoken by, presented by these Jewish followers of him, here is, the, here is the thing that they must not wrestle with. Everything I've been taught about who I am and my people, how we were created, who created us, who we are, those things are not wrong. But now I have to factor in this new reality. The God who actually created me and who loves me is that people's God. And so now I have to wrestle with how do I make sense of what I know in this place, in this space, with this ground, this dirt, this water, this, these ways, this way of life, when I realize that the God who created me is over there, but is also here. Now, so that, that means that it goes all the way down and it is inescapable if, in fact, we are convinced that over there, now brought to us, is someone who's already always been here, but we didn't fully know who this was until that moment, right? Mm -hmm. Now, of course, w once we have the colonial rejection of that, once we have the supersessions rejection of that, that becomes a colonial rejection of that, then the Nietzsche, then the Nietzschean insight is true. When Christians imagine that they are the bearers of the story, it's ugly hmm. all the way down. Hmm. But there's still a story to be told. It's just not the one that we've been telling. So that reminds me of, do you have any follow-up questions? Oh, so I mean, many, I'm sure but, you do. but go yeah, ahead. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, you, you were speaking of the ground, the dirt, the water. Um, you wrote also in Christian the Christian imagination, that Christian theology lost its way when it was yanked out of a particular place, particular moment, a particular people. What do place and land and even belonging that you've talked about have to do with Christian theology? Everything. So um, every, every problem that emerges with the racial condition emerges because Christians um, imagined people separate from place okay. and turned and two things formed at the exact same in the exact same reality people encased in their bodies in what we would call racial identity and the ground transformed into something we call private property mm -hmm. those two things form together and so the christianity that was meant in terms of its real trajectory to join people in the dirt, join people through the dirt. By the time we come to the colonial, colonial modernity, that gets blown apart. Now, wh where does that begin? It begins in Acts 10. It begins in Acts 10. What's in Acts 10? And again, for those of you from YouTube, <laughs> Randy, what's in Acts 10? <laughs> You remind you? <laughs> yes, yes. So in a Acts 10, that sheet is lowered. Mm -hmm. That sheet is lowered down to Peter. Peter, who is on the roof waiting for something to eat, the sheet is lowered, and it is filled with um, animals that no 
pious, no committed Jewish follower of God, especially not follower of Jesus, would ever touch. And so, and so the sheet comes down, and you know, make the long story short, there's a there is a struggle, and Peter says, keep saying, no, God, I'm not gonna, I'm I won't do that. And then God says, what I've made clean, you eat. And, and the, the revolutionary character of that passage continues to elude so many of us. Because in Peter's day, and for so many people still in the world, mm-hmm. people identify with their animals. Yes. And so to lower the sheet with animals that anyone knows that they wouldn't eat is it, it can't be misunderstood as anything other than also saying, become a part of the people who eat these animals. Mm-hmm. And so to be joined to people at the side of the animal, to be joined to people outside of the dirt is precisely the way God was imagining, dreaming of the moving forward mm-hmm. with God's disciples through Jesus. That, that, that is what's at play. And so what we find in Acts 11 is the crucial question, the crucial question that we have forgotten. Peter returns to his Jewish colleagues, and in fury and anger, they ask him, why did you eat with Gentiles? Why did you go among them and eat with Gentiles? Peter gives the great answer. I don't want to do it, but God told me I had to do it. And and then Peter retells the story. Then in, that, in Acts eleven, that great moment where it says, and they and they were they were reduced to silence. Then after the silence, they they rejoice because now the Gentiles have been included. But the inclusion is at the site of the dirt, site of the animals, site of the land. That that's where it works. So it it points to a deeper intertwining, a deeper overlaying, if you will, a a different kind of um, grounded assimilation of one into the other that is fundamental to the trajectory of where Christianity should go. But of course, that's not our history. Yes. So I'm hearing you say when when we feel our theology delving into the abstract and moving more towards the abstract, that's a more of a comfortable, easy theology rather than a theology rooted in the particularity or maybe even an incarnational theology. How much of the incarnation can teach us about this particularity or the theology of particularity? Everything. And and we have to we have to take the incarnation all the way down to the dirt. In the, in the book I'm working on right now, I spend this time thinking about Mary and Jesus. Hmm. And how Mary is not only in, in, in Christian theology, Mary is called Theodicos, which means God bearer. She's the bearer of God. And, um, but we also have to think about Mary as the pedagogue of God, the one who teaches God mm-hmm. how to touch the dirt. And God comes all the way down to the dirt. And it's precisely that life of living and learning in the dirt that is crucial to our own discipleship. And this is why for so many for so many Christians our Christianity continues to hover above the earth. Yes, yes. <laughs> it does it's not really grounded in the ways 
in the way it should be grounded in the actual earth, in the dirt, and in life together on land, inland. So help me understand how this changes theological education. This is the focus of your book, After Whiteness. And you say there that theological education works against a pedagogy of belonging. Yeah. What does that mean and how can we do it differently? Well, the the pedagogy of belonging that we are given a glimpse of in the New Testament begins with one beautiful image, Jesus and the crowd. Jesus gathers a crowd. And here we we run past the significance of this. It's there, but we run past it. And what is it about that crowd that is so amazing? The crowd are made up of people who don't like each other. Mm-hmm. Gentlemen, these are folks who are not friends. Mm-hmm. These are strangers, and many of them are enemies. And, you know, had Jesus not been there, first of all, they wouldn't be together without Jesus. But had Jesus not been there, they would have killed each other. <laughs> these are not, these are not a group of kind, like-minded folks who happen to be with Jesus. They are they are there for all manner of reasons, desperation, hope, fear, um, curiosity. But they are together because of Jesus. Again, Jesus gathers a crowd. Now the crowd is not Christian. I always like to say the crowd is not Christian. But it is the it is the ground upon which a Christian could form. Hmm. It is the ground upon which the crowd might become some of them, many of them we hope, congregation. But they begin as crowd. They begin as stranger enemy, some friends, estranged and new. There that that crowd is crucial. And so theological education should have as its center cultivating people inside the life of Jesus, <laughs> who gather a crowd. Mm-hmm. Now, that that ability to gra- gather together people who ordinarily would not be together, would not want to be together, are enemies, but, but they are gathered together by the one who is doing whatever work they're doing. That's what ought to be at the center, not only of theological education, but I would argue it should be at the center of all Western education to try to create, cultivate people who are able to do that, no matter what they're doing, as opposed to what we have now. What do we have now? I'll point this out in the After Whiteness text. What do we have now? We have the image at the very center of Western education that is constantly, that has been constantly nurtured by theological education through the colonial period up to this moment, And that image is of a white, self-sufficient man who embodies what I call three dismal virtues. Possession, control, and mastery. And is able to show his finish, that he is able to show in how he does his work those precise characteristics. And that image has shaped so much of the pedagogical and curricular vision of Western education, to show someone when they have finished their education, show someone when they are imparting knowledge, show someone when they are doing their work, who always exhibits the finished man. And as I point out in that book, the history and the reality of of wounded and killed souls who have tried to 
become that man, who are trying even at this moment to become that man, could feel could feel multiple stadiums. Mm-hmm. This is the this is the wounding that has been and continues to be a part of education. I remember and after Whiteness, you tell the story in connection with that point of, and I don't know how you know close to the facts any of your stories in there were, but uh, being on a hiring committee and there being two candidates, both really skilled, a black woman and a white man, and knowing by just by the tenor of the conversation, by the expressions on the faces of the other people in the hiring committee while the man was presenting, knowing that he was going to get the job because he embodied those virtues that you just described, and whereas the black woman was more self-referential um, and, and presumably more in line with what you're calling belonging or creating of uh, communion or, or something like that. Um, so as, as somebody who I see a lot of uh, life in that and I definitely feel like I need to learn from that, but I'm also still, you know, I hail from the tradition that everybody else hails from uh, in the Western educational system, uh, which is that, you know, the way you prove that you have received the education, what I did at my dissertation defense, right? <laughs> you, you have to own the topic and you kind of have to own the room in a certain way and you have to fend off all the objections and you have to demonstrate your expertise. And the way that you do that is very much in the way of, you know, mastery, not of the people in the room, but of the points that they're making. Um, mm. And it's hard to see how belonging or communion could fit into that or um, contribute to expertise formation, which is, as I understand it, the point of um, the academy. So help me <laughs> to see what practically this means for... Listen, you, 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 just, you just, the way you put it is so beautiful because it can't fit into that. Mm-hmm. Yes. You're part of it. That, that, that has to be broken open. So one of the ways that, that I, I think helps us imagine something different is to imagine an artist. And as I like to say, if, if you go up to any really great artist and you say to her or him or them, you say, boy, you, you have mastery over your instrument. Just you know, 99% of them will look at you like you have three heads. Like, <laughs> uh, the, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, I'm just trying to play my songs. <laughs> because when when we start to figure out how does that, how does that help, help me? How does it actually help me do my art? How does it actually help me um, convey to the world what I see and what I experience and what I feel, we realize it doesn't. And then, but we have to, but here, here's where it's, it's crucial. Here's where we have to start to ask the question, whose dream? This is the question I say to every would-be doctoral student and every young professor. Whose dream are you living inside of as you seek to exercise mastery? And that, and when you when you start to unpack the dream, what you realize that you're inside the master's dream for his children, the master of the plantation. What was his dream? That his his dream was inside answering that crucial question, as he looked at all that he had been given, i.e., stolen, all that he had. And what was that? What was that question? Who must my sons and my daughters sometimes? But he was really probably thinking more about his sons. Who must my sons and daughters become in order to inherit what I have been given? Ergo, there go. Therefore, they have to be trained mm-hmm. 
to become white self-sufficient men who show those virtues, who can carry forward my legacy. And so if we start to unpack the dream that sits behind as the engine, not only of aspiration, but the engine behind curricular design, then we can start to unravel something that we really, at the end of the day, we don't need. Now, that doesn't change the, 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 the joy of reading and thinking and talking and arguing even. I mean, all that's still there, but it, it starts to crumble all the stuff around it that's configured it in a particular way that is built inside of classic European chivalric culture. Mm-hmm. You know, two men with knives, two men with guns. <laughs> Fire! <laughs> it, starts, it starts to unravel all of that. And, st- and we can start to see if we can put it together in a different way. So, you know, you, you, you go sit in a room full of poets and they're, they're taking apart a person's poetry and they're, they're asking questions and thinking about what they're doing. There may, there may be some arguments. There may be some you know, other things. And none of that, none of that, at the end of that, no one's going to say, no, you now have mastery over this poem. <laughs> <laughs> they're going to say, okay, next poem. Friends, before we continue, we want to thank Storyhill BKC for their support. Storyhill BKC is a full menu restaurant, and their food is seriously some of the best in Milwaukee. On top of that, Storyhill BKC is a full service liquor store featuring growlers of tap available to go, spirits, especially whiskeys and bourbons, thoughtfully curated regional craft beers, and 375 selections of wine. Visit StoryhillBKC.com for menu and more info. If you're in Milwaukee, You'll thank yourself for visiting Storyhill BKC, and if you're not, remember to support local. One more time, that's StoryhillBKC.com. So maybe this is a good segue into this next question of thinking about how we think. I've heard you quote from M. Sean Copeland, the great Roman Catholic womanist theologian in her essay, The Thinking Margins. And mm-hmm. so my, what might Christianity have to learn not only from people in the margins, but from or from living in the margins and even trying to think on the margins? What does that mean? It means that you are outside. You are outside not only of um, the decision-making and the power that's inside the decision-making, but in many cases, you're outside the quest for that power and for of being able to make those decisions. And you have to then imagine an alternative way of being when you're outside. Now, why this is so important, and M. Sean Copeland in that marvelous article is pointing to the way Black women intellectuals, especially Christian intellectuals, thought from the site of the margins. And from that site, not only could they could they see the ways in which they were excluded, but they could also see with much more clarity the way power works. And the way power to be able to see the way power works is a beautiful insight that being at the margins helps you see. And, and the question always is: will we listen to those at the margins who can actually see better than we can often see how power works, how power is working? 
how power is working to conceal its own operations. And so what she is pointing to not only is that that reality of, of sight and that reality of resistance and refusal to operate inside those logics, but how to then propose an alternative way of being from the margins that would reconfigure that very positionality. That, for the Christian, is absolutely central because we serve a God who was crucified. <laughs> and so that, that already messes up a lot of people's minds, a crucified God. And to think from the reality, not just of resurrection, but also crucifixion. As I like to say, one of the things that we have to recognize, especially for we Christians in the Western world, is that it's not at all clear that many of us, many of us, um, worship Jesus's power and not Jesus. There are people who love mm -hmm. Jesus's power. Mm -hmm. They don't care much. They don't care much about Jesus. Yep. They want to be on the winning side, and they imagine that's the winning side. That crucified dude thing, it's not that appealing. That power thing, all that power, yeah. And there are people who, in the way they are, in a sense, executing, performing their Christian life, they're not worshiping Jesus. They're worshiping his power. Mm -hmm. This is just a total aside, Dr. Jennings, but when I've heard you talk in, in these ways— I hear you a lot of times. I heard I was just listening to an interview with you last night, and you were talking about the history of colonialism and, and Christianity, and you were using pronouns of we and our, not they and them. Now, you're, you're, you make a living of pointing these things out and trying to form and point to a new way forward that maybe looks more like the cross, that looks more like incarnation, that looks more like Jesus. And when I do that stuff... I usually say they and them because I don't want to associate myself with with that part of our history. Tell me, tell us why you use those pronouns, why you say we and our so much. Because we we the the reason we I say this is because at heart we are in a shared project that many of us have really messed up, mm -hmm. but it is a shared project. And so, um, because I'm inside the life of following Jesus, I have to acknowledge that I, along with others, are struggling to follow. And so, it does no, it does nothing helpful. It's not helpful at all mm -hmm. to um, separate myself from those who I think are failing more poorly. I mean, failing more spectacularly. <laughs> <laughs> following Jesus than I am. But, you know, I have two daughters, two young daughters in their 20s, and one's in her, one's in her 30s and one in her 20s, and they may look back and say, you know, you were feeling spectacularly too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, there is, there is the, it, it is, of course, a challenge because I have, I have many Christian friends. They do not want to be associated with the kinds of Christians who are doing and have done such horrors in the world. And 
I, I, I accept that too. But here's what we all have to understand. For those who are not Christian, anyone who claims to be Christian is guilt by association. It's <laughs> <laughs> guilt by association. You're a Christian. Yeah. And what about those Christians? I said, well, hey. And so that's the re- the we is recognizing a shared project. That's good. It may not we may not want to say shared sin because I, I always worry about sin being used poor. As, as a theologian, I understand sin is an incredibly complicated tool and it has to be used with precision. Mm. It's often not. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, people throw around sin too quickly. But sin Sin has to do with not only not only what we're doing, but the way in which we're con- we conceal to ourselves the very things we do. And even when we think we see what we do that is sinful, that scene itself is also sinful. And so that means we have to we have to work with such precision and delicacy when we claim we see sin in order to understand what we think we're doing when we say we see sin, even in ourselves. One more question about um, theological education and formation, and then I think Randy wants to talk about Acts a little bit. So you say in After Whiteness, you tell this story of two um, teaching assistants who have um, different but equally poor styles of of teaching the (laughs) the students in their charge. Um, And one of them has a kind of orthodoxy and one of them has a kind of anti-orthodoxy, but they're both equally, um, you know, fervently pushing their own, their own views here. And you say that, this is a quote, teaching towards an orthodoxy or towards an anti-orthodoxy orthodoxy is not in fact the problem. It is the exclusionary logic that attends these efforts that turns theological studies into a dismal science, draining it of the surprises of love. Mm. Powerful. But the next line is the one I want to ask about. Designing for intellectual affection requires a discerning love that knows how to perform an exclusion that does not isolate, but opens toward a more intense listening and learning from one another. Can you unpack what you mean by that exclusion that doesn't isolate? Yeah. So you are showing in the teaching the paths that you think are fruitful and the paths that you don't think are that fruitful. You are showing the things that you find beautiful and attractive, and the things you find let's let's say they, they don't quite taste right. Let's let's switch that metaphor to an eating metaphor. They don't quite taste right, and so to to show to show exclusion at that point is not to say don't look at it. It's to say if you look at it, think about what I've just said in terms of it being less fruitful and not tasting as well. And and in doing that, you're heightening the you're you're heightening the reality of it all, that all of it is to be tasted. And that's what we want. We want theological education to and bring people into the joy and the art of it all. And inside the joy and the art of it all, the the, the distinctions between what's helpful and unhelpful. We can even now layer what's orthodox and unorthodox or heterodox. We can even layer what is helpful or harmful. All of those now can start to be layered in a way that doesn't separate us, but joins us, I'm using my word again, into a shared project 
of learning, right? That, and again, I like I like the image always of of an artist that um, particular techniques, particular artisanal um, movements may not be seen as this, that's not good right here. That's not going to work. That, that, that doesn't. That's not right. But at the end of the day, all you've done. You haven't put up a you haven't put up a, a a hand and say stop don't go there. You said think about it in terms of what it's trying to do and what you're trying to do. Yeah, that's helpful. Can I do one quick follow? <laughs> yeah. Okay. I wanna I wanna pose an objection that is not my objection. I don't actually think it's a very valuable objection, but it's one that might be in the minds of some of our <laughs> listeners. All right. Um, so I don't know if you're familiar with this organization that calls themselves the Heterodox Academy, and it's headed by people like Jonathan Haidt, the famous um, psychologist, and they're very worried about. Uh, they call it the coddling of the uh, minds of the American student. And what they're so worried about is that we're going to have campuses full of people, and they think this is already happening, who think that education is, the point of education is to make you feel like you belong there. Um, And that in that effort, we're going to lose what's actually core to education, which is, you know, learning some skill or some kind of expertise or some kind of, I don't know how they would put it, but they they want... um, to reaffirm the value of being kind of um, tough and being able to, you know, not need a safe space, but actually like grapple, you know, with the challenging ideas and hear from all the speakers who are, you know, maybe a little bit um, controversial instead of, you know, protesting against them and whatever. So they, they have like very long book length cases <laughs> about this and why it's so bad. Um, yeah, I so- know that- I, I don't know those particular people. I know this argument that you're yes. laying out and I, I can understand it. And, and you can hear a bit of frustration in it. Mm-hmm. And the, the the frustration you hear in it is um, the, the lack of clarity that we've operated in for decades, maybe even centuries about what are the ends of education. And part of that, it gets back to what I mentioned earlier. The, the end was always there. It was the master's dream. <laughs> that was the end. But people people didn't, either didn't know or forgot about that. But here's what I always like to say about this is that many people imagined inside of the quest for the white self-sufficient man and those, and those virtues, they imagined that there, there is a prerequisite of a certain kind of brutality necessary to achieve those ends. And that brutality was really aimed at cultivating one fundamental thing inside of all of this, how to pay attention, how to see precisely, clearly, and sustain one's view into a thing that then opens up a depth of articulation and understanding. So I I just want to do an in run after having been in the academy all my adult life. I'm just going to do an in run around all that and say we can get there a lot easier and a lot better and a lot with, with less blood on the floor, less body parts cut up. <laughs> if we come to the question, what does it mean to cultivate attention? How do we help people pay attention? And I submit that we do not need brutality to help people learn how to pay attention. We do not need to think in terms of 
uh, a vision of rigor that is imagined with a kind of cruelty <laughs> that I ignore your I want you to ignore whatever, just focus on this. We, we don't need that. But now here's the problem. Attention can't be limited. Attention is expansive. And the, the problem with the with the way our educational system is, is established is that it wants to narrow and and squeeze attention into one thing. And that myopia is damaging to helping students not only see them see their world, but at the same time see each other and see themselves and see each other seeing each other. That, as we all know, is what we are always trying to recover when someone has been educated. So here's what we want to, here's what we want to overcome. We want to overcome this statement that we, that said that said all over the world. And let me tell you, after I wrote after whiteness, I've heard from people from all over the world. But we want to correct this thing that's said all over the world. This brilliant scholar, this brilliant person, is has no interpersonal skills. They are mean. They are horrible. They're a terrible person, but they're brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> this person who um, says horrible things to people, who hurts people, but but they're brilliant. We excuse inhumanity that has been cultivated, formed, rewarded, because a certain kind of attention has been cultivated with it that we accept. Now, I want to make it impossible for someone who winds up in a position of teaching or leadership who has the one, but also brings the other. Mm -hmm. And then everyone who around that person has to suffer and compensate and rethink life because of that one. Think about how much suffering is in this world because we excuse someone who's been formed precisely in that way. I'd love to spend the next 10 minutes, the last 10 minutes on the book of Acts. I'd love to have a whole hour, but I get 10 minutes. It's all good. So <laughs> maybe we can go lightning, lightning around here. Um, because the, so you wrote the book commentary in the book of Acts and you see the book of Acts, I, I'm going to be butchering your take, but as a revolution of inclusion, perhaps, um, which has completely changed the way I see the book of Acts. One of the main themes that you cite, you cite three main themes in the book of Acts, but one of those that just arrested me is you say the book of acts is about a god restless in the world through the spirit tell us what that means it means it's god as a radical revolutionary even obsessive community organizer who is trying to draw people together who would not want to be together as i like to say the 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 one of the crucial themes that runs through the book of acts is that when the spirit comes the spirit is almost always, I dare say always, asking people to do something they don't want to do. Yes. And what is it that they don't want to do? They don't want to go and be with those people over there. Mm -hmm. As I always like to say, my favorite story is Ananias, when um, the angel comes and says, there's a guy named Saul, I want you to go, go to him. 
And he says to he says to the angel, rumor has it. <laughs> please go tell, tell God this rumor. Rumor has it. This man's a killer. <laughs> I just think that's the funniest, that's the funniest thing in the book of Acts. To say to God, God may not be aware, but this man is a killer. And I don't want to go hang out with a killer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as you're laughing, I'm reminded of the spirit telling Philip, go stand in that chariot with that Ethiopian eunuch and talk right. about the scriptures together. That wouldn't be something that Philip would choose, I'm guessing. Um, so when we talk about life together, life together, often we embody it and romanticize it and acts to how everyone was sharing with everyone and we're all one big happy family. It's really great. And I, w- I, th- I think you probably say that we divorce Acts 2 from Acts 1, what was happening in Acts 1. Can you tell us what life together looks like in a less of a Pollyannic type way? Yeah, it, 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 it means we bring into smaller spaces all of the struggles that are in larger spaces. And in those smaller spaces, we work through them knowing that because we are in those smaller spaces together, those in the wider spaces will see us all as betrayers of our peoples Hmm. because we are together trying to work this thing out. Hmm. And because of that, the most revolutionary thing that is present in among these followers of Jesus is that they dare to be together. Never forget Antioch schools, Jerusalem, so this is a particular question that you don't have to answer if you don't want, but I just want to, I, it's been in my mind ever since I've heard you talk about Acts and read you. Does the book of Acts help us at all in trying to figure out particular modern questions like queer inclusion in the church, queer affirmation in the church? And if so, how? Mm-hmm. It does, because what, what, it, what the book of Acts uh, does more than anything else, it shows the undomesticated reality of the spirit and of the gathering that the Spirit is um, facilitating, bringing together people who are not only don't, do they not want to be together, but there is no protocols, there's no plan of action, there's no blueprint for how they could be together. And in doing that, it's calling into question how they understand themselves. You know, and that, that wonderful, that wonderful, um, it's wonderful in terms of, I think what it means ultimately, but it's not wonderful in what happens. Ananias and Sapphira, you know, that what what is being what is being killed there fundamentally, not just these two people, but what they represent. What do they represent? They represent the the couple imagining itself as more important than God. The couple making the decisions about what's best for them in the face of God. And so there's a fundamental reordering of life together that gets back to the question you just asked me a moment ago about what what is it about this thing that's not Pollyannish? It's that these people have very different ways of life and all of them now are being called into question inside of a new configuration. And not only their ways of life, but who they are, how they understand themselves. So as one person said to me, well, like, so it sounds like you're saying that there's a fundamental querying that happens with this with the spirit. I said, like, yeah, that's, that's right. But but it there is also a kind of querying of the querying. So that what the spirit is creating are new 
patterns of life together that are actually life together. That's the thing. It's it's um a moving forward now with people who I I don't think anyone outside of this reality can fully appreciate how we're, how we are working to move together. So in that, I, I I'm just saying this because I want we're just talking now, right? <laughs> um, I remember you saying something to the effect of gay marriage maybe should be celebrated in the church as much as heterosexual marriage because what the culture once tolerated, once the spirit touches it, it changes. Or so, can you can you can you cl- clarify that for me? Yes, that um, two things I always say there. So what what marriage will mean now is that no marriage, no marriage can claim the community, the church as its servant. Hmm. And for so and for so many churches, they think they exist to promote marriages and families. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what in point of fact is the case is that all coupling gay or, uh, or cisgender coupling is now in service to the church. And so what, what is being said fundamentally is that our love is now inside of discipleship hmm. and not saying the church is a servant to our love. <laughs> our love Yes. Is in service to the church. Yes. And so that means that same loving couples, like heterosexual couples, when they come to the church and say, marry us, they are presenting themselves as disciples in service. That's that's the first thing that's being said. <laughs> Sheesh. Kyle, yeah. you got anything to finish uh, up? I, we're unfortunately out of our time. Can I ask like one quick closing? Quick, I hope it's a quick closing question. Is that all right? Of course you can. Okay. It's it's changing a little bit the focus here, but I I heard something really powerful that you said um, after George Floyd's murder. Uh, this is back in um, yeah. 2020. Um, yeah. And you said you drew this distinction between anger and hatred, and it's- you said that there are two criteria for when anger is, I don't know if, you know, justified or what, but it, when, when you can, when it's safe to say that my anger represents God's anger mm-hmm. um, and avoids sliding into hatred. And your two criteria were life is being destroyed and the anger is shareable. And I mm-hmm. want to know where you got those. <laughs> how, how, oh should, <laughs> how should we, how should we derive criteria like that? Um, cause you know, I trust your voice. And when you say that I'm inclined to listen, but I can also imagine hearing similar criteria from other voices that I don't trust. And I would want to know what their method was. Yeah. It's, 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 it's straight from the prophets. And if you want to read someone who beautifully lays that out is the great Abraham Heschel, as he talks about the prophets. And so the prophets, they are inside God's righteous indignation, right? And because they're inside God's righteous indignation, they're sharing in God's anger, and that anger is aimed at the destruction of creation and of people, mm-hmm. and the the constant refusal to see that destruction. And because the prophet shares it, it 
points to what not only God is angry about, not only what the prophet is angry about, but what you should be angry about. Mm. And those, those are the criteria that make sense to me. Because at the end of the day, God's anger is aimed at our return, a- aimed at our returning to right relationship with God, to making right what is clearly wrong. And what is the thing that is wrong? I mean, when we come back to what you just said a moment ago, you're destroying what God is trying to cherish. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. One more thing to just root us in the present moment. As we speak, there's a war happening right now in the Middle East between Isra- Israelis and Palestinians. Mm. Um, tell us how we should think theologically about what's happening in the world, how we should think about the violence that we see, how we should think about and use our voices to advocate for a different reality. Yeah, I have dear friends who are Palestinian Christians who are suffering painfully right now. And when when all this broke out, I was I was in Rome at a conference of Christians and Jews looking at um, the Pope's release of the documents of Pope Pius XII. And so all this broke out at that moment. You know, I, I say to my Christian friends my, and my Christian siblings that at this moment, what we must do is we must, of course, um, hate what Hamas has done and despise the use of violence. But we cannot stop and then turn around and say, violence used in vengeance is okay, given the use of violence. A long time ago, we know that Violence as an option was taken off the table for us as Christians. And that means we cannot, we can never, ever imagine violence as doing anything other than beginning more violence. And so we, we have to stand against the use of violence as a way to try to bring peace because we know that that's fool's goal. Mm. But that means in this particular moment, we must do like so many people are doing. We can we can be continue inside of the logic of Christians, the logic of Christianity, to stand with Jewish people and not stand with the deployment of violence by the nation and state of Israel. And we should also, at the same moment, mourn with those who have been who, those who have suffered loss and, and suffered the loss of their family and friends, and stand with the Palestinians who are suffering loss, and also inside of the operations of a nation state that continues the colonial practice of occupation. I don't think anybody would deny that truth, but I would hope more than anything else, Christians would be very careful before they sign on to the appropriateness of the operations of any nation state, especially with the use of violence. Because we know, we know, once you give in to violence, you have made yourself an agent of death. Mm -hmm. We'll stop. Mm -hmm. 
Well, Dr. Willie James Jennings, thank you for bringing yourself and your wisdom to us. I, I'd love to talk for another couple hours. We'll have to do that another time. When your next book comes out, what is your next book? Do you know when it's coming out? Uh, and my hope is that sometime in, in 25, my book on race theology and the built environment hmm. will be out. That's my hope. And, then well, and sometime after that, my Doctrine Creation book will be out, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be uh, emailing and getting you on the schedule again when those come out. But uh, thank you for your time, Dr. Jennings. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure. Great to talk with you. Thanks for listening to A Pastor and a Philosopher Walk Into a Bar. We hope you're enjoying these conversations. Help us continue to create compelling content and reach a wider audience by supporting us at patreon.com slash a pastor and a philosopher, where you can get bonus content, extra perks, and a general feeling of being a good person. Also, please rate and review the show in Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. These help new people discover the show, and we may even read your review in a future episode. If anything we said pissed you off, or if you just have a question you'd like us to answer, send us an email at pastorandphilosopher at gmail.com. Find us on social media at at podcast, and find transcripts and links to all of our episodes at pastorandphilosopher.buzzsprout.com. See you next time. Cheers.